like to introduce Caroline Cornish, who is currently working on her PhD at Royal Holloway College um, on the Museums of Economic Botany at Kew. Um, and she is going to talk about useful and curious, making meaning of the Kew Museums of Economic Botany. Good afternoon, and thanks, Sophie. Uh, also, thanks to Sam and the group for inviting me here this afternoon to um, share with you some of my findings so far uh, on the Kew Museums of Economic Botany, which were a series of four separate museums which were open in the grounds of the um, Royal Botanic Gardens between the years 1847 and 1910. My title, Useful and Curious, reflects an attempt to pin down the specificity of the Kew Museums and to situate them within the landscape of 19th century museology. So having considered possible... That's really not showing up very well, is it? <laughs> Precursors. Um, I'll examine the museums through their practices in order to gain an understanding of their epistemological framework. And I'll attempt to analyse the reception of the museums through Kew reports and through accounts in a range of media. And I'll conclude by exploring the legacy of the Kew Museums, um, what traces remain of the museums of economic botany today, um, and also what knowledge has been reconstituted through research. So, the museums that form the focus of this paper were national, high-profile institutions. They were publicly funded and throughout the long 19th century loomed large in public debate and media reportage on such subjects as Sunday opening hours, visitor statistics and national collections. Similarly, they featured in a series of government reports by select committees and royal commissions. So what was it about the Kew Museums that attracted such public attention? Well, the Kew Museum of Economic Botany was in the first instance the idea of William Jackson Hooker, pictured here on the right, the first director of Kew, and it opened in 1847. Um, acquisition criteria were defined as all kinds of useful and curious vegetable products which neither the living plants of the garden nor the specimens in the herbarium could exhibit. Um, in this inaugural statement, the tension between useful and curious is evident. On the one hand, with useful, the epistemology of imperial science, and on the other, allusions to the pre-enlightenment cabinet of curiosities. This paradox was visually apparent in the museums and was to affect the way in which certain objects, uh, particularly ethnographic objects, were presented and perceived. Hooker defined economic botany um, as the practical uses and applications of the study of botany and the services thus rendered to mankind. In practice, Q identified plants with commercial potential within or without of um, imperial territories, and coordinated efforts to transplant and cultivate such species um, within the boundaries of the British Empire. Now, it's easy for um, a 21st century observer to underestimate the importance of plant raw materials, but in the 19th century, as Richard Drayton uh, reminds us, 
quote, machines did not merely run on coal. They consumed cotton, wool, dyes and vegetable oils and the strength of the peripheral populations which provided these. There was, in short, a concern with economic botany across the British Empire. Hooker accurately claimed that the Kew Museum of Economic Botany was the first of its kind, but what precursors might have inspired the idea? The Indy Museum, another lost museum, was first established in the offices of East India Company in Leadenhall Street in 1801. Since its inauguration, it had been collecting natural and artificial productions, particularly, quote, those plants whose produce is an article of commerce. The Indian Museum at Calcutta uh, came into being in 1814, largely as a result of the efforts of botanist Nathaniel Wallach. It had likewise collected from inception dried fruit and plants, mineral or vegetable preparations peculiar to an eastern pharmacy, and implements of native art and manufacture, among other categories. Hooker may have taken the name of his museum from the Museum of Economic Geology, which first opened in 1837 at Charing Cross. And certainly, by the early 1840s, applied science appeared to perfectly express the European zeitgeist. In 1843, Prince Albert um, took on the presidency of what was then the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, and there ensued a renewed emphasis on the application of science and art to industrial purposes. The following year, two industrial exhibitions in Paris and Berlin attracted widespread interest. Categories included machines, fabrics, applied arts, and various industries, and a wave of national industrial exhibitions ensued across Europe. The time was apposite for Q to refashion itself within the discourse of economic botany. To grow the Q collections, Hooker mobilised a range of networks across governmental, commercial, and scientific milieu. Consequently, a second museum, confusingly named Museum No. 1, was opened in 1857, a timber museum in 1863, and a museum of British forestry in 1910. Objects in in museums 1 and 2, the the first two images there, um, were arranged in botanical order according to de Candolle's System of the Vegetable Kingdom. And in fact, to walk through the rooms of the museums in the prescribed order, and here you've got a plan, a numbered plan from the museum guide, um, was indeed to perform de Candolle's uh, taxonomic system. The other two museums lay largely outside of this schema. The Timber Museum was arranged geographically, and the Museum of British Forestry thematically, so that over time, with four museums, Kew could offer a range of approaches to a range of audiences. Hooker's initial decision to adopt a botanical arrangement for the first two museums may seem odd in light of his primary audiences, Um, not only the uh, scientist, but also the merchant, the manufacturer, the physician, the chemist, the druggist, the dyer, the carpenter and cabinet maker, and artisans of every description. 
But the labelling practices adopted went some way towards catering for this diversity of audience. A typical label, like this one, uh, might begin with the indigenous name of the plant, if known. Um, within the context of 19th century natural history museums, Q attached an unexpectedly high degree of importance to indigenous knowledge. Uh, indeed, indigenous uses, processes and manufacturing techniques lay at the heart of economic botany. After a brief description, here, wood, uh, the botanical binomial is given, followed by usages, which may be uh, European or indigenous. The geographical source is specified, and finally, the name of the donor, in a gesture that confers distinction on both donor and recipient. So, if not live plants or dried herbarium sheets, what could the visitor expect to see in the museum's cases and cabinets? Hooker described the display rationale thus, the raw material and, to a certain extent also, the manufactured or prepared article, correctly named and accompanied by some account of its origin, history, native country, etc. In this case from Museum 2, you can see specimens of the cocorite palm, as well as photographs immediately below there, giving geographical context. And on the shelf below, you perhaps can make out examples of walking sticks made of this species, which were presented in both rough and finished form. The manufactured or prepared article was a term which incorporated a widely heterogeneous array of objects, from bars of fries chocolate to ethnographic artefacts. Such juxtapositioning of nature and culture was, of, of course, far from uncommon in 19th century museums of natural history and has been understood as an implicit narrative on the case for colonial improvement um, by a number of writers. However, in the case of the Kew Museums, I argue that the presence of the material culture of colonised peoples um, signified two interconnected ideas. First, that the colonies were a virtually limitless source of raw materials for British industry. And secondly, that indigenous practices provided the key to tapping such resources. To cite Drayton again, the museums offered a portrait of providence. Either way, what became clear is that from inception, uh, textual and graphic data were to play an important role in rendering such a collection intelligible. Nor did the museum's displays always cohere so well. In 1898, Q took delivery of a Hyder totem pole from British Columbia, an object it had actively sought via the agency of colonial government. It was placed in the Timber Museum amidst specimens of tree trunks, a group of objects denominated by size. Thus situated in this sylvan landscape with no obvious context, um, to quote Francis uh, Larson and Chris Gosden's work on the Pitt Rivers Museum, no distinction was made between nature and culture. Uh, indigenous peoples like flora and fauna appear here as suitable objects of imperial improvement. The Timber Museum was designated as a space, quote, devoted chiefly to gymnosperms, specimens of overseas tipper, and large articles unsuited for exhibition in the glazed cases of the other museums. Stephanie Moses has demonstrated how, through the prominent display of large individual items of an unusual nature, the British Museum unconsciously defined itself as a cabinet of curiosities. In 1886 at Kew, such items occupy the central space in the Timber Museum and included 
um, a model in Cork of the town of Freiburg in Switzerland, um, a model of an Indian indigo factory, and uh, you can probably make that one out there. Um, and, uh, and in 1910, a model of the Taito Kuin Shrine presented to His Majesty King George V and graciously confided to Q. The distribution of large objects, particularly models, into the centre of the timber museum, adjacent to botanical specimens and prepared timbers, resulted in a confusing array and throws into relief a diverse range of potential readings for the totem pole, now barely um, visible at the very far end of that image. Perhaps I can just highlight it amidst the surrounding chaos. Um, okay. Hooker's stated aim was to popularise the science of botany and to render it generally available, and this included the use of various interpretative devices. We've already spoken of the use of photographs, and maps were also used to provide geographical knowledge. These were blank, but coloured in red uh, to indicate the, indicate the geographical distribution of a given species. Um, botanical illustrations were used. You can see those, I think, make them out, hanging from the balcony there. Um, to denote the appearance of the living plant at the various stages of its life cycle. And models of plaster, wax, and wood were also utilised to represent flowers and fruits. Models were used, too, to demonstrate uh, production processes. And this one, of the Indigo Factory, came to cue from the Indian and Colonial Exhibition in 1886. Um, via networks of commerce, the museums acquired a number of what they termed illustrative series, Exhibits demonstrating the stages of production from raw material to manufactured article. The series shown here depicts the manufacturer of children's toys for Noah's Arks produced in Saxony. As the guidebook explained, the rough design of the animal required for representation is first turned in a circular piece of wood um, and then cut by lathe. Sections are then cut out and finished by hand. The museum guides were also um, an important element in, in processes of knowledge production in the museums. As indicated in a museum poster from the early 20th century, quote, not only do the guides enable visitors to make good use of the museums, but they're useful works for home reference, as they contain valuable botanical and economic information. Labelling on many objects was fairly minimal, but by cross-referencing numbers on particular objects with their entry in the guide, more could be known about the objects themselves and the so-called correct order in which to follow the displays. Visitor experiences are difficult to gauge in the absence of eyewitness accounts, but I've looked at visitor data and also mediated responses in order to gain a better understanding. Joseph Hooker's 1871 annual report um, provides um, a taxonomy of museum visitors uh, classified according to their behaviour. So it's interesting... Oh, I don't think you can read it, can you? Is that visible at all? No, let me read it out in that case. Um, so the first, the first one is the industrial class in the middle, of, in the middle or lower grades especially. Then we have... Um, mechanics and artisans with their families, followed by schoolmasters and private tutors with their charges and students, 
are the most important class, according to Joseph Hooker, of colonists temporarily resident in England. And, and I think there is very much a hierarchy being expressed here. Scientific and horticultural visitors, including cultivators of cotton, tea, sugar, cocoa, um, and other foreign colonial products, um, pharmacists, etc. And this last comment, in all fairness, doesn't refer precisely to museum visitors, but I did feel that I had to include it. Um, Mere pleasure or recreation seekers whose motives are rude romping and games. This section, with that of it, their invariable followers, the roughs, become um, fuller every year. Um, so it's interesting to see that the museum seemed to appeal to a broad spectrum um, of the visiting public. Them, um, they seem to have offered what Annie Coombs describes as narratives of belonging and exclusion, um, a collective experience of national unity inscribed onto the imaginative geography of empire, within which a range of uh, contradictory representations could be sustained. Mediated reactions to the Kew Museums can be found uh, in adult and children's literature, the popular press, a couple of examples there, and commercial guidebooks. In the latter two categories, the approach tends towards the descriptive rather than the critical, and there's no recognisable sense that a museum of economic botany could be anything other than of general interest. There's no discernible surprise at the broad array of objects on display. Useful plants and manufactures constitute an imperial um, vision of the 19th century, in which such a Borgesian array appears to make perfect sense. In only one account that I've so far encountered is this not the case. In Radcliffe Hall's novel, Adam's Breed, set in the late 19th century, um, an Italian immigrant family makes a day excursion to Kew Gardens. Whilst the father's keen to see all the museums, the children are less so. Museum one, they find stuffy and very dull, until they come across the models, presumably of the indigo and lac fam uh, uh, factories, which, one of which you saw earlier. This brief passage, which I'll read out for clarity. The museum was stuffy and very dull. Two cases only were amusing. These stood by the door and seemed to contain, um, seemed to contain little people um, and so forth. Um, and that brief passage, I think, helps explain the attractions of Kew's heterogeneous collections to a, to a multiplicity of audiences. So as the Museums of Economic Botany, and this, this statement here um, is perhaps an example of Hooker's puffery, um, but um, as their museums had prior influences, they also had imitators and followers. The Harvard Museum of Vegetable Products was established um, with a complete taxonomic set of specimens in 1858, supplied by William Hooker to Asa Gray. Um, in 1868, the Bethnal Green Museum um, first exhibited its economic entomology collection, illustrating the harmful and beneficial aspects of insects to humankind. And Kew donated many objects to that collection too. And in later years, um, Kew director William Thistleton Dyer was on their committee of advice and reference. The Royal Colonial Society established a museum in 1870 for, quote, the collection and exhibition of colonial productions. The Adelaide Economic Botany Collection opened in 1881 under the directorship of Richard Schomburg, again in close collaboration with Kew. 
And the Imperial Institute, opened to the public in 1893, had a remit which often appeared to overlap with that of the Kew Museums. Quote, the utilisation of the commercial and industrial resources of the colonies and India and other parts of the empire by providing comprehensive collections of their natural products and of such products of other nations and collecting full scientific, practical and commercial information relating thereto. Now, I think it's fair to say that the elephant in the room in all this is perhaps the Great Exhibition of 1851, um, which I, the, the influence of which I'm not seeking to uh, deny. And, of course, subsequent international exhibitions um, doubtless inspired countless trade museums and, indeed, supplied their collections. Um, so the collections at Kew continued to grow in the interwar period. But in the post-war Commonwealth era, with their outmoded and chaotic displays recording, recalling a colonial past, they were seen by some as something of an embarrassment. In 1858, a visiting committee recommended the immediate closure of Museums 2 and 3 on the grounds that they were no longer edifying. Museum 4 became simply the Wood Museum, um, a space which is now most often remembered for its selection of walking sticks, wooden elephants, violins and cricket bats. By 1987, Museums 1 and 4 were both closed and the objects database in preparation for their transferal to the new Sir Joseph Banks Centre for Economic Botany, originally conceived of as a research, exhibition and storage facility. It opened in 1990, but its life as an exhibitionary space was short-lived. In 1998, um, that's an exterior view by the way, in 1988 Museum One reopened as the Plants and People exhibit, an education centre after one point £1.4 million um, National Heritage Memorial Fund Award. Today, the stored collections are available to researchers of all persuasions and objects are regularly loaned to other institutions for exhibition. And if any of you saw the High Society exhibition recently at the Welcome Collection, there were quite a number of um, um, objects from the Economic Botany Collection in that exhibition. Okay, so um, I've made a number of points on route regarding the um, epistemological specificity of the Kew Museums, uh, but also inconsistencies in collecting and display practices which allow for a range of conflicting interpretations. And the museum's persistence with curiosities, I consider, as a response to that broad range of audiences which they were expected to accommodate. Um, but I'd like to finish by considering what exactly has been lost what retained and indeed what regained of the Kew Museums. The museum displays with their multiple interpretative components are certainly lost, uh, although we can recover them to an extent through photographs and guidebook descriptions. But we struggle to understand the affective and physical experiences of the museums for visitors. And it's important to guard against anachronistic interpretations of these. Also lost is the technological context in which industrialised economies were largely, largely reliant on plant raw materials, a situation which fell away markedly during the 1950s. However, there has been a renewed interest in natural products since the 1980s, uh, albeit on grounds of ecology rather than economy. So Hooker's original concept begins to look highly contemporary. Above all, however, in the closure of the Kew Museums, we've lost a National Museum of Economic Botany, uh, sorry, of Botany. Um, perhaps the Eden Project um, is the nearest present-day equivalent. 
We still have, however, the vast majority of the collections and currently amounting to over 85,000 objects. And these include ethnographic, archaeological and botanical specimens. The Bentham Hooker taxonomy is embedded in the classification storage of the objects uh, and they, they can also act as records of changing nomenclature. And what are being regained are details of museum practices and the hidden histories of the museums, the curatorial, colonial and indigenous actors who form part of the collaborative exercise known as the Kew Museums of Economic Botany. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline. I thought that was a fascinating paper. And I must say, one of the greatest pleasures in my life was rummaging in the collections of economic botany at Kew and finding exhibits with their 1851 exhibition labels still on them and say, oh, gosh, that was at the Great Exhibition. Wow. Um, and sometimes even borrowing them, too. Um, now, I think the going to be a lot of questions and um, we have the microphones at the ready um, first one here already thank you um, Dr Cornish you may be interested to know that a, one of those amazing sort of teak glass cases just visible in your slide of the timber museum was until last year being used as a garden shed in the garden of a country house in Essex <laughs> and um, I presume it came from the 1886 Indian and Colonial Exhibition. It was a sort of Indian temple-like thing, but like a glass case, and I just recognised it in one of your slides. So not all the collections were saved, I'm afraid. It was carted off, and I think it's been sold to an architectural salvage firm now, but um, I can send you some images of it. It's rather sad. It's all covered in slime and stuff. <laughs> Great. Mm. Right. Questions in the corner, top corner. There. This is to Chris Plum. I would like to know um, if there is a, a, a strain of development directly from Nice Minerva to the zoo. Um, uh, yes. Um, right. So uh, Pidcock's menagerie at the Exchange uh, was later in the early early. Uh, 19th century, uh, bought by uh, someone called uh, Edward Cross, who um, uh, held the last menagerie at the Exeter Exchange. Uh, and uh, in the late 1820s, uh, the London Zoological Society opened their menagerie in London. And um, it was at this point that the uh, Exeter Exchange on uh, the Strand closed, uh, in part due to the opening of the zoo, uh, but also uh, due to architectural uh, and uh, other imp uh, road uh, improvements to uh, the Strand and Piccadilly. Um, so some of these animals were removed to uh, the London Zoological Society, but also across uh, uh, um, bought and developed uh, the Surrey Zoological Gardens, uh, which survived for a period, I think, around 30 or 40 years in the 19th century uh, until that uh, closed down. Uh, so there was uh, somewhat of a direct link. Uh, also, the Tower Menagerie, uh, their animals were removed to uh, the London Zoological Gardens as well. Uh, so there's a 
some direct links as well as uh, conceptual links as well between menageries and zoological gardens as well. Does that answer your question? <laughs> could, could, could I take Chairman's privilege and ask what on earth was the Noah's Ark menagerie in Soho Square? Because it occurs to me that it was virtually opposite Joseph Banks's house, and I wondered if there were sort of links and crossovers or I'm, how long it lasted. I'm not sure. It's difficult to. Um, I, I should just explain briefly how I identify these uh, right. these institutions. Uh, these premises, um, usually through uh, advertisements in 18th and late 17th century uh, newspapers, uh, so the licensed collection or the uh, collection of uh, newspapers at the British Museum, uh, sorry, British Library, or through trade cards held at the British Museum. Uh, so when I give the dates to these institutions, they're kind of approximate because I have to see when I can first trace them and then in how many decades they appear as well. So all I can say is that there was a premises called Noah's Ark uh, in, that, in Soho Square uh, at some point uh, in the 1760s. Um, but um, many of these places at least lasted a few years and sometimes decades uh, because you see advertisements later on often held by someone with the same surname, uh, so probably a family member. Thank you. Question there. Hi, Chris. I'll really this your paper, as you guess. Um, one of the things that fascinated me was your mention of bears actually being kept. I mean, I know bears were used for bear baiting and uh, bear dancing things earlier on, but is there any record that bears were bred in this country, or were they always imported de novo? I'm not entirely sure. I, I know uh, civic cats could be bred and were, and there's sometimes hundreds in one premises. Um, but I think they were um, brought along uh, with living, uh, say, with furs, for example. Uh, often uh, cubs were, would be uh, left behind after their mother had been slaughtered for uh, skin. And so that would be a very compact and easy to feed cub to bring across that would then be sold to a barber or, or a, a wig maker and then fattened over a period of a season and then slaughtered. Um, but um, uh, when you trace these businesses through advertisements in London newspapers, uh, they advertise uh, soon to be slaughtered, as in the, the bear is uh, fat and ready, and then advertise to pa uh, potential patrons after the bear has been killed so they can come and see it to get their genuine grease. Um, so it's quite a large market. Um, so yes, they, I don't think bred in this country, uh, but definitely bought over as uh, young cubs. Were there any uh, guidebooks produced for these museums, and do they still exist? Um, yeah, yes, there were. Um, Gilbert Pidcock produced an extensive illustrated um, guide to his menagerie uh, from the 1790s, uh, and that do that does still exist and can be can be looked at. And he um, culled lots of his entries from um, popular natural histories at the time, um, but also. Um, populated his catalogue with his own impressions of animals as well and uh, uh, colourful anecdotes from the menagerie life and their visitors. Um, some of the early menageries I mentioned from the 1760s and 70s did have catalogues, um, but not many of them are, in fact, none are extant. I only know of them through other sources which mention them or through 
um, a small line of text at the bottom of the advertisement which says to be, to be purchased, the catalogue. Um, the insurance companies did ask the menagerists to itemise the animals uh, because they were so expensive. And um, sadly, none of those exist apart from if you go to the Sun Insurance uh, records at uh, London Metropolitan Archives, um, each at uh, the bottom of the, the clerk in the insurance office would write at the bottom of each entry uh, to be uh, a reference to go and look in the catalogue for the exact itemised um, animals. Gentlemen, second back row. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, um, question for Caroline. Um, uh, the totem pole. Uh, uh, I think at this time, museums in Europe and North America are acquiring totem poles, oh, all kinds of museums in Pitt Rivers and so on. So the question is, um, what's different? Or is there a distinctly economic, botanical way of absorbing this object in the collection and representing it? Uh, what is the role of... Um, anthropologists and, and others in the process of collection, what happens to the poll? Could you say something more about that? Yes, I, I, can, I can say a little bit more about the poll. Um, I think um, I, I presented it as a bit of an anomaly to the display system uh, that was established in the museums because um, as you saw, it, well it was I can tell you, even the woods it was positioned next to um, weren't um, examples of red cedar so, which, which the poll is made of. So we're not there seeing um, the raw material and the finished object. Um, so it, it, it's, it definitely con sort of contravenes those rules. And it seems that the, the poll was positioned there purely because of its scale, and there, was a, there, were, there were very few other places to display it. So there were a number of examples where the uh, system broke down. Um, and my point being, of course, that when that happened, um, you know, there were... Uh, a range of meanings that could be derived from poles next to trees and, uh, and and all sorts of things like that. The second part of your question was to do with uh, the networks through which it was acquired. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, um, Q used its um, had developed by this stage um, fantastic um, networks of colonial government. Um, it was very well positioned vis-à-vis -vis the India office and the colonial office. Um, so, um, via the Colonial Office, Q writes to the uh, Canadian High Commissioner in London, who writes to Ottawa, to central government, who writes to the provincial government in British Columbia, who um, um, commission a collector, Charles Frederick Newcomb, a local doctor who turned a professional collector, um, to, to find the pole. Um, and originally, Q was uh, actually going to purchase it, but... Um, due to a, a series of uh, very complicated mistakes, which I won't go into. In the end, uh, they decided they ought to give it to Q because um, the whole process had taken so long. So what you can see there is Q utilising networks of colonial government in that instance to um, acquire materials uh, for the museums. But, but if I can sort of follow on from that, it's as though the ethnographic has become submerged within the economic botany or there isn't, shall we say, a clear difference of perception between yes. the two. Is that, would you that's say that, that? That would be my conclusion in that case. In that yes. case, at yes. least, yes. yes. It's not part of the strategy which says you have a raw material mm. and a finished object. Mm. And in any case, you know, what does a totem pole tell British manufacturers? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a, it's not a, a very concrete example of... Um, how a particular type of wood could be put to commercial use. Mm. 
question then. Uh, I have a separate question, but just to follow on from that, it's uh, there is a long history of the co-production of uh, uh, anthropology and ethnography with uh, colonial practices and collecting, having to do particularly with natural history. So the fact that these are these two items, the 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 tree and the totem pole, are together has more to do with the the, the networks that co-produce both of those sets of methodologies rather than anything anomalous. Um, but I, I wanted to ask a particular question about the relationship. This is for Caroline. Uh, the relationship between uh, Kew and the Natural History Museum mm -hmm. in London's uh, uh, herbarium and uh, the, the va-et-vient of specimens between the two and to what degree uh, do you feel that, uh, let's say, the, the colloids separated from the solution such that Q became the economic botany area and the NHM became the taxonomic area. Yeah. Could you... Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. yeah, can, I, can, I can say a little bit. Um, I would just preface that by saying I haven't studied herbaria. I'm specifically studying this um, museum collection. So my remarks will relate to that. But, um, yes, well, it seemed from very early on, um, 1847 was the founding of the collection and the first museum, uh, that the area of economic botany had been uh, pretty much claimed by Kew. And there's a history to that in itself. Uh, it goes back to the days of Joseph Banks uh, with his breadfruit, and we all know about that particular incident. Um, and in many ways, when Hooker came along and Kew became a publicly funded uh, institution, um, Hooker, as the first director, was simply reviving a lot of those networks uh, and those purposes for Kew. Um, and that was how um, he was justifying um, funding streams. Um, the Natural History Museum, from what I can tell, um, never embraced the concept of economic botany, certainly not in its galleries, whether they conducted research is another matter. Um, and documents that I've read, uh, annual reports and so forth from the Natural History Museum, um, very much emphasize that they are a scientific collection. And so it seemed that they very much chose their respective grounds and uh, that that for some time worked quite well, but of course, they were in constant conflict over the 19th century. Uh, there were lots of debates in Parliament about which institution should house the national botany collections, and uh, very fierce they got to those arguments. Um, this is just a comment to add to... Um an earlier question relating to Chris's paper. Um, there is, um, there was a published catalogue or guide to the Laverian Museum, um, also um, an auction catalogue relating to its sale in the early 19th century. And um, many of the specimens in the museum were um, painted by the watercolorist Sarah Stone, and these images were themselves um, displayed in the museum. Um, and uh, many of them now uh, preserved in the Library of the Natural History Museum. Um, we should also say that we actually have a copy of Shaw's catalogue on display in London's Lost yes. Museums upstairs, so if yes. you wanted to have a look at it. Please do also um, a small part of one of the sales catalogues of William Bullock's museum. Okay. Question here. 
Just keeping my director fit. Um, it's a question for Caroline. I'm curious to know... Sorry, I'm hiding behind the, the lectern. I'm curious to know a bit more about um, the entomology collection in Bethnal Green. And in particular, we've heard quite a lot today about who um, museums were and weren't for. Um, and a, such an amazing collection there in such a working-class district... Were the locals ever given access, or is it strictly for um, gentlemen of a certain cut? Um, yes, they, they were on public display. Um, they were part of the um, ed edifying uh, displays at Bethnal Green. And uh, the, the booklet that I, you might have caught a glimpse of in the image there um, was actually the museum guide, which was available to the general public. Um, so... Are you, are you thinking why would people be interested in economic um, entomology or is that sort of driving the question? It's an interesting place for it to be cited and mm. I'm curious what happened to it. Mm. Uh, what happened to the collections? Um, that I don't know because I'm not tracing um, objects that, 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 you know, that, that have not gone through queue but um, um, certainly um, this whole area of economic science, if you want to call it that, applied science in other words, um, was clearly thought of as something of general interest to all classes, um, which is, is quite hard for us to understand, I think, in the 21st century. But um, I think it was this concept of um, un unifying a very disparate public in the notion of um, empire and all these resources that were all coming home to, um, to sort of um, you know, enrich... Uh, the metropole, the, the, the centre, if you like. I, th I think it's interesting that um, at the end of the 19th century, the Bethnal Green Museums, the sort of Brompton Boilers, as mm. they were known, mm. but they were brought there. Um, at, at one point, a lot of Sir Richard Wallace's collection was, was displayed there, where it was felt to be of particular relevance to the furniture-making trades and veneer workshops in that area. And, in fact, you know, wonderful art treasures were, were lent, uh, and there were sort of great committees of sort of worthy gentlemen. It was felt very much that that class person called the art workman, who may have been a sort of mythical unicorn-like figure, but the idea was that, you know, to keep them away from the gin palaces, that they would go and actually purify their, you know, and get inspired. So I think it was quite an interesting um, uh, accessibility. I think they really did want the dregs of the East End to go and look at it, which, um, you know, is a rather wonderful thought. Time for one final question. Jeremy. Uh, I'm afraid it's not a question, but just to continue the Bethnal Green right. run. Um, the Pitt Rivers collection, which ended up in Oxford, uh, was first exhibited at Bethnal Green from 1874, and our understanding of that is that it was quite deliberately uh, done to educate the potentially revolutionary working classes of the East End uh, in uh, the, the evolutionary perspective to demonstrate through Pitt Rivers' collections, which of course were organised in typological series to show how things uh, evolved, that that was the natural way for history to progress and that revolution was... Uh, um, a, perverse, a perversion of history and so it was a very, very deliberate educational act. 
Well, thank you, thank you very much for that comment, and I think there's a great deal more that we could talk about, and we shall do so over tea. Meanwhile, I hope you'll join with me in thanking our two speakers for two very stimulating pages.